Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our show know, each week in Jewish communities throughout the world, a section of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, is read in a yearly cycle. This week, the name of the portion, known in Hebrew as Parashah, is Achare Mot. It begins in Leviticus 16 and continues through the end of Leviticus 18. Achare Mot is usually translated as after the death, and this week's parasha follows the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, who we read about in an earlier parasha. In this parasha, God warns against unauthorized entry into the holy referring to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Only one person, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, may but once a year on the biblical holiday known as Yom Kippur, enter the innermost chamber of the sanctuary in order to offer the sacred koteret to God. Another feature of the Day of Atonement service is the casting of lots over two goats, to determine which should be offered to God and which should be dispatched into the wilderness to carry off the sins of Israel. The parasha of Ahre Mot also warns about bringing korbanot, animal or meal offerings, anywhere but in the holy temple. It forbids the consumption of blood and details the laws regarding sexual impropriety and inappropriate sexual relationships. It is a very complex and detailed parasha. And to help me unpack it is Rabbi Simcha Bob. Rabbi Bob was the founding rabbi of Eitz Chaim Congregation of DuPage County, a suburb of Chicago. He began his journey at Eitz Chaim in 1972 as its first full-time rabbi, and Rabbi Bob continued um, until his retirement in 2016, more than 35 years of serving the same community. The congregation grew from a relatively small community to nearly 500 families. Rabbi Bob is the author of numerous books, including a discussion of the Book of Jonah, published by the Jewish Publication Society, and it is a pleasure to welcome him again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's good to be with you, and I'm glad we get to talk about this interesting Torah portion. Thank you. It is an interesting Torah portion, and even though the Jewish community has just finished observing Passover, the Torah doesn't give us much of a breather. It immediately reminds us of another festival, even though that festival will be the center of the fall Holy Day cycle. I want to begin by reading something from chapter 16 from the Torah. Um, it reads as follows, and this will be our introduction. Aaron shall take the two he-goats, 
and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meetings. And he shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for God and the other marked for Azazel. Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by Lot for God, which he is to offer as a sin offering. While the goat designated by Lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before God to make expiation with it and to send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. Well, there's a lot in those three sentences. And some of it, even if you're not of the Jewish community, resonates with us today when we speak about the scapegoat. So shall we begin there? Let's talk about scapegoating. So it was interesting to me preparing for today when I tried to type the word scapegoat as two separate words. The autocorrect on my computer wanted me to combine them into one word. Because in modern English, the two words are combined to one word, not to refer to an actual goat, but to refer to a process of blaming somebody or some group of people for larger sins that they're probably not responsible for. For blaming them, I think the more recent, most recent example is blaming them for the pandemic, that the pandemic is the fault of some individual group that probably has nothing to do with it whatsoever. And you can make the people the scapegoat. The term scapegoat comes from this week's Torah portion, but in this week's Torah portion, the term scapegoat doesn't refer to a group of people being blamed for something they're not responsible for. In this week's Torah portion, it is indeed two words, and there is an actual goat. No people, a goat. And one of the two goats becomes the scapegoat, quite literally. So as we read the verses... It appears that the Torah commands Aaron, who would be identified as the high priest, to pick two goats, one to be sacrificed um, quickly and one to be saved and sent to the wilderness. And then it introduces this unusual term, Azazel. And I'm wondering how you would explain to our listeners Is the Azazel the goat? Is it a designated place? Is it a person? Uh, How would we understand this? So the intellectually honest response is, we're not certain. The Torah itself does not explain it. The Torah assumes that we know what it's talking about. So this gives Torah interpreters the opportunity to enter into the conversation. I I want you to repeat that again, Rabbi, that if we're intellectually honest, we have no idea what Azazel really refers to. Yes, we should modestly say we don't know. (laughs) I know for religious leaders and Bible interpreters, it's difficult to say we don't know. We're used to being able to say we know for sure. So here we have to say we don't know. So um, I would say there's the one opinion, I think perhaps the majority opinion, is to say that Azazel refers to a place. And that um, if you know some Hebrew or know Hebrew names, the ale at the end of it probably refers to God. There's lots of biblical names that have ale at the end, like Daniel or Samuel. And Michael. All those. Yeah. It's 
there, it's a reference to God at the end of the name. So here it's probably also a reference to God. The Hebrew word for strength is oz. So oz here probably refers to strength. So somehow it's the strength of God. Some people, some commentators think it's a place of great might in the wilderness. Some people think it's a place of a, a sharp cliff in the wilderness. Somehow they, I think the plain meaning of the text is that the goat's going to go off into the wilderness towards a place called Azazel that was well known to people when this text was first written. And even though the English um, tends to be read as Azazel as a person to send the goat to Azazel, you're suggesting that the proper reading, given our lack of certainty, is not a person or another god or another sanctuary, but an unknown place that would reflect um, Ozlael, the strength right. of the, God. I mean I think that's what it means. I mean, there are people who disagree with me, and there are people who think that there are some dark spirits out there in the wilderness, and they come out at night, and the night is dark and full of terror. And there is always a, this sense of that there's something else out there that we don't know and we don't understand on the other side. And certainly in the Jewish mystical tradition, the Jewish mystics see this verse and see an opportunity to hold forth about dark forces on the other side. But I don't think that was the original meaning of the text. I think the original meaning of the text is the goat's going to go out into the unknown wilderness. So we began our conversation talking about scapegoats. Is it from this second goat identified as going away and having um, Aaron place the sins of the people upon it? that we emerge with the concept of scapegoating? Correct. So Aaron places his hands on the head of the goat and then symbolically places the sins of the entire people on the head of the goat. Now, it's interesting to me that the sins don't go on the head of the goat that's going to be sacrificed. One might imagine that the sins would go on the head of the goat being sacrificed, and that the blood of that goat would make atonement for the sins. But the sins are not atoned for here through the blood of the goat. Rather, the living goat carries the sins away, literally leaves the city and goes somewhere else. And that the sins, well, the goat physically goes somewhere else, the sins are metaphorically carried away by the goat. You know, certainly you wouldn't look at the goat and say, oh, it's laden with sins. No, the sins are not visible to the observer. But Aaron, in his position as the high priest, is seen as having the authority to symbolically place the sins of the entire community on the head of this goat. And this goat becomes the scapegoat, and the goat carries the sins away. It's, it's certainly, for a document of antiquity, an interesting uh, binary response. One goat is immediately sacrificed, as the text says. Uh, lots are drawn upon the goat, one marked for God and the other marked for Azazel, uh, and he offers it as a sin offering immediately. 
And we are uh, amazed that this other goat um, is not sacrificed. Uh, there's nothing like this in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we, we read, if we read carefully through the Hebrew Bible, we can read lo- lots of rules about animal sacrifices. We often tend to not read those portions in great detail and which sacrifice, which animal sacrifice, for which purpose, and which parts of the animal are completely burned and which parts are eaten by the people or the priests. But in all those stories, the animal is indeed sacrificed. Here, the animal leaves, lives and leaves, is left alive and carries off the sins. Now, first of all, Aaron has a lot of power here. And we should note, at least in passing, that it's Aaron, not Moses. That Moses is missing from this story. And Aaron has, is the high priest, and he has a particular role to play, and he has symbolic power in terms of intervening between the people and God. Well, it strikes me that it's more than symbolic power. It's actual power. Um, I, I'm probably taking a modernist reading of it by saying <laughs> it's calling it symbolic power. Yes, here it seems to be, um, yes, Aaron has, is really the intermediary. No. And, and if we read a little bit further in our parasha, beginning with verse 21, we have a sense of the uh, intense power that is placed upon Aaron in his role as high priest. I'll read it for our listeners. This is Leviticus 16, verse 21. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess it all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites, whatever their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and it shall be sent off to the wilderness through a designated man, which is also an interesting translation there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, thus the goat shall carry on it all their iniquities to an inaccessible region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. So this goat lives, according to this. Yes, the plain meaning of the text is the goat survives. That someplace, each, <laughs> there would be a goat wandering around with all these sins. And this is, this is a live goat, and that it, it continues to carry the sins. Some of the, the ancient sages had a hard time with this. So if we would look at the Talmud, we would find a description there that the goat eventually wanders off a cliff. And not, a, 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 not by accident, that, the, that this guide leads the goat in such a way that the goat lead, falls off a cliff and in that way is indeed sacrificed, but sacrificed away from the temple and the goat dies. But that, I think, is interpretation that's not, that's not required. The text doesn't tell us that at all. The te- I think the text suggests strongly that the, the, the goat lives. Aaron is charged with uh, placing his hands upon this goat and in the placing of the hands, transferring the sins of the people uh, upon the goat. Is there anywhere in the text that it's identified how Aaron chooses what sins to transfer? Or, um, you know, in some traditions, we have the practice of confession. But there doesn't seem to be a... um, 
identification of Aaron uh, listening to the people prior to Yom Kippur and cataloging their sins so that he can place them on the goat. So how does he know what to do? Right. I mean, as you were just asking the question, I was imagining a very long line outside the temple in Jerusalem with people waiting, Aaron sitting patiently listening to everybody come in and confess their sins and um, and having to listen to the same sins over and over. Oh, you too? Those same <laughs> sins over. Oh, you were jealous? Okay, fine. Perhaps. 432. Right. Perhaps yeah. different lines. All those with sexual sins on this side. All of those stealing on this side. Raise your hand if you're unclear of which sin you want to confess to. Uh, you have to use a card punch system of some sort. Right. <laughs> Um, um, so so that, that's clear. We, you and I can have a good time kidding around about this, trying to imagine it, because it's it wouldn't work. You couldn't have one person listening to the confession of all the sins of everybody. So there is some, I'll use the term in a general way, magical way of understanding how this happens. So that Aaron is speaking on behalf of the people, representing them, and by saying these are the sins of the people, they become the sins of the people. So uh, once many years ago at a, a study group here at our synagogue, a, a Catholic priest was visiting with us, and somebody asked him about confession of sins, and somebody asked him about original sins. And he said, I haven't heard an original sin in years. Um, <laughs> so, so that Aaron, like my friend Father Jim, knows what the sins are. There's a certain category of sins that people commit, and that he places all of these sins, like as I said before, symbolically on the head of the goat. He doesn't have to say, this person did this sin and that person did that sin. It's not really taking a census of the population to gather together all their sins, but rather it is symbolically placing all of the sins on the head of the goat all at once. And how do you know it's all the sins? Because Aaron says it's all the sins. Um. Our listeners may be aware that in um, modern Jewish practice, uh, Yom Kippur is the holiday in which uh, members of the Jewish community come to synagogue and do confess their sins. Um, and as you were speaking, I'm wondering uh, the following. The litany of sins known in Hebrew as the al prayer are all in the plural. We don't confess sins as individuals. We confess sins as members of the community of which you certainly are welcome to comment on why we do that. But I'm wondering if it's a reflection of this earlier notion that Aaron knew all the sins of the people. There are no new sins. Everybody is a sinner in some manner or form. Um, and so today we acknowledge that uh, truth by uh, the creation of prayers in the plural. Yeah, so there's lots to respond to. The, the first I want to make really clear is we no longer use goats. So, <laughs> so if anybody wants to contact either one of us to see, oh, I want to come to your synagogue and see the goat ceremony. We stopped doing this with the destruction of the temple in the year 70. And it made and, for challenges for the custodians. Yes. So, well, I agree. Having actual goats may liven up the service. We're not going to do that. Um, we're going, and in, 
in lots of Jewish worship, I can be, I'll be serious about it, in Jewish worship as it began in the first and second century, prayers replaced sacrifices. So in the daily worship and in the holiday worship, we have prayers in place of specific, specific prayers in place of specific sacrifices. So it's no surprise that on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we have atonement prayers in place of atonement sacrifices. And I do think the idea of the prayer of the sins being collective grows out of this part of Leviticus. That here, Aaron has all the sins, and on Yom Kippur, we all stand up, the congregation stands up and confesses all the sins, and each of us knows which of those sins are our own personal sins. Uh, no, 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 that's me. No, <laughs> we know which ones are ours and which ones are not ours. We do, on Yom Kippur afternoon, sort of reenact this Aaron ritual. We don't re reenact it, but we retell it. So as part of the liturgy on Yom Kippur afternoon, we recall this dramatic moment of Aaron confessing the sin for the entire people. So we feel connected to it, but we work it out in different ways. We, uh, Rabbi Bob is referring to what's known as the Avodah service. In Yom Kippur, um, members of the Jewish community are traditionally in synagogue, both the evening service and then from um, morning through sunset on Yom Kippur Day. And following the morning service um, in most synagogues, there's an afternoon service. And while there's another Torah reading in the afternoon service, there is this specific service that he referred to called the Avodah service in which we retell this um, uh, sacrificial cult uh, behavior, and we specifically uh, identify what the role of the priesthood is. Um, the priest offers three different prayers of expiation, um, even though there's only two identified in the book of Leviticus, an extra one is thrown in for on behalf of the priesthood. Um, so this ceremony of scapegoating, um, which we began with, do you have a sense of how it makes the transition from a very specific biblical behavior to uh, part of our vocabulary today in the modern world, which Google doesn't allow you to see as um, a real goat? Um, and two words, but Google has already created a, a, a different definition of it. So that here in the book of Leviticus is a helpful ritual to alleviate the guilt of sin from people's shoulders. All religions, each in their own way, have a manner in which we can be freed from the responsibility of our sins once we've recognized them and confessed them. We need, we, if we're burdened from everything we've committed to our whole life, our whole lives, we won't be able to stand up straight. So we need to somehow remove the burden of the sins from our shoulders. Here, the goat story is a helpful way how it functioned in the ancient world while the temple stood in Jerusalem. As we've just been talking about, the prayers have shifted that from goat to prayers to remove the sins. We also fast to help us remove the sins from our shoulders. 
the term scapegoat has entered into modern vocabulary in a much different way. <laughs> the term scapegoat has been scapegoated. Um, that it, it has become a term, a negative term for blaming the outside party for the responsibility that the larger society probably holds collectively. It's not all of us, it's them. Um, whenever we talk about any national or international uh, change of conditions, how did it happen? The real responsible answer is complicated. The simple answer is to blame it on some guy. Some guy. <laughs> it was the left-handed people. They did it. It was all those left-handed people. Um, and the simple answer is the scapegoating answer, and it's never correct. So it's um, more than a coincidence, I would venture to say, that the Jewish people who invented the concept of the scapegoat uh, tra are transformed by history into the quintessential scapegoat. Yes. Um, I think it would be fair to say that no other singular group in history has been identified for scapegoating purposes as often as the Jewish community. Let me be clear, I'm not suggesting no other group, but in terms of multitude of occurrences, certainly in the Middle Ages um, and uh, beyond, um, Yes, yeah, so we've led the league in being scapegoated <laughs> for centuries. We are I mean, Hall of Fame scapegoaters. Yeah, scapegoats. Scapegoats. <laughs> and unfortunately, have had rarely had the occasion to um, use the terminology to justify anything else with regard to us. No, and I think that with this wisdom and this experience, we know that it's, we have a responsibility to avoid scapegoating anybody else. Yeah, and to I, avoid going for the simple answer and really to look at issues in a more complicated way. Uh, and I, certainly Passover, which we just completed this observance of, um, teaches us that, that history is a complex series of events. Um, and while the story, the biblical epic and the biblical narrative seem to be fairly straightforward, our commentators, both um, legally and um, fancifully often want to add a little nuance and tapestry and texture to the story. Right. And there in the Passover story, we experience the Exodus by telling the story. On Passover, we don't say we're going to re-experience the Exodus from Egypt by going for a walk. Right. And also here in the scapegoat story, we're retelling the story on Yom Kippur afternoon without actually taking out real goats. So that we can connect to the ancient experience through retelling it. Uh, it's a retelling. But interestingly enough, our community's retelling has been ritualized. So it, it becomes more than just Aesop's fables that are left <laughs> to uh, one generation to choose to retell. But through the ritualization of it, we have specific moments in which we retell it and struggle to find its uh, long-lasting meaning. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Simcha Bob, Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation in uh, the Chicago suburbs. 
I want to thank him for helping us unpack this very challenging and interesting portion. You can find a recording of this morning's show on the chri.ca website or as a podcast on iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. <laughs>